The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Hey, it's Martine. Just a heads up that the first story in today's show is about school shootings, and that can be difficult to hear. So please take care. Okay, here's the show. I thought December 14th, 2012 would be just a, an ordinary day and a string of ordinary days. But my little boy, Noah, never came home from school that day. That is Veronique De La Rosa. Every day is a realization that he should be here, yet he's not. Those of you who have never lost a child don't want to imagine, and those who have know what I mean. On Tuesday, Veronique was one of several parents who spoke at a news conference following the announcement of a legal settlement. That settlement was between gun manufacturer Remington and the families of nine of the victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. But is lost remains lost forever. Today is a day of accountability for an industry that has thus far enjoyed operating with immunity and impunity. And for this, I am grateful. Thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 17th. Today, we're diving into the unusual legal argument behind this settlement and why laws protecting gun manufacturers may not be as airtight as we thought. And later in the show, we take you to the front lines of the protests in Ottawa. We all remember nearly 10 years ago when a gunman opened fire at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. That day, 26 people were killed, including 20 children. For years, the families of some of the Sandy Hook victims have been embroiled in a legal battle with the manufacturer of the gun used by the shooter. And this week, the two parties reached a settlement. In the 10 years since, families uh, of the victims have really struggled to get any measure of accountability or change out of gun manufacturers. Kim Bellware is a national reporter for The Post. But that changed on Tuesday with the announcement of a settlement between Remington Arms, which manufactures the Bushmaster AR-15 semi-automatic style rifle, which was used in the shooting, and family members of nine of the victims. And what's significant is the settlement, which was for $73 million, is one of the largest that we've seen a gun manufacturer have to pay in a case like this. But this case was never about damages in the sense of compensation. It it was about damages in the sense of forcing change. That's Josh Koskoff, an attorney for the families, speaking at Tuesday's press conference. It was about damages in the sense of realizing the goals of these families to do whatever they can to help prevent the next Sandy Hook. But how would suing a gun manufacturer prevent another Sandy Hook? To understand that question, we turn to Kim, who spoke with our producer, Renny Svernovsky. 
So, Kim, why is this settlement and its size, $73 million, why is it so unusual? One of the hurdles that gun violence survivors and their family members have really struggled with for the past 17 years is this federal law that's given gun companies a lot of broad protection from lawsuits. This law, the Federal Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, was passed in 2005. It had really heavy support from the NRA. And this is one of the challenges that families, including families of Sandy Hook victims, had continually come up against. What they were able to do that you know allowed them to be successful is they found um, one of the exemptions under this federal law are certain state laws that have to do with trade practices. And so in Connecticut, where this was filed, the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, which is essentially a marketing statute, allowed the families to find this opening. And they contended, um, among other things, that Bushmaster is a combat weapon. It's a gun that's designed for war. And yet Remington improperly marketed it to civilians. Kim, could you tell me more about the facts that were presented against the gunmaker? In a lot of the research that the plaintiffs did, you know, they were learning everything about this weapon, how it was preferred by the military for its efficiency in killing, and that it really doesn't have a place uh, in the hands of everyday citizens. However, there was a market, a market of responsible people, a market of people who knew what an AR-15 was and knew what the responsibility was of owning an AR-15. What they also found in the marketing materials is that Remington was not marketing it to, you know, this niche group who had previously been interested in it. These were people maybe like target hunters or, uh, you know, people on gun ranges, those kinds of things. But they were expanding and particularly they were targeting young men. They were using themes like masculinity and strength and power. Josh Koskoff said that According to the documents they were able to obtain, a lot of this changed around 2006 is is when they saw Remington really change their tactics in, in trying to tap into this different market. How do you target people who have never owned a weapon? You have to convince them they need it. The younger male demographic tap into their anxieties about masculinity, tap into their feelings of aggrievement or insecurity. Tell them that this weapon conveys power. One such marketing campaign that was mentioned by the lawyers and the families was Bushmaster's man card campaign. And this was a marketing strategy where it allowed people to submit their friends' emails to Bushmaster saying that they had been reported for not being a man because they didn't have this rifle. So you could give Bushmaster a friend's email or anybody's email And they would get an alert saying, you've been reported for not being a man. And it would encourage them to buy a Bushmaster rifle. They buy the rifle. They get a card that says, consider your man card restored. And Josh Koskoff, the attorney for the families, said this really, um, you know, was evil genius marketing, as he called it, and, and allowed Remington to really go after young men who were vulnerable to, you know, maybe being bullied, who felt socially awkward, underdeveloped, maybe had a crisis with their identity or their masculinity. And, you know, they argue these are exactly the kinds of people that, you know, we don't want um, encouraging them to look to a weapon like a semi-automatic rifle to give them a sense of manliness or confidence or purpose. 
Koskoff, the lawyer for the families, uh, told me in an interview on Wednesday that... The uh, marketing of this combat weapon, which had been around for quite some time, but had only been marketed in this way very recently, um, was immoral, unethical, and unscrupulous. And it, it caused, of course, the most grievous type of harm imaginable. Tell me more about the settlement. Did any other information come out? The families have always said that the money was not an important part of the settlement to them. It's significant for some reasons because it draws in all of Remington's insurers. But the most important thing to them was the ability for the families to make public documents that they had extracted from Remington during the discovery process of this lawsuit. So they were able to get internal documents from Remington about strategy, about marketing, information that a lot of people haven't seen before. And and that could potentially be very valuable for the public in understanding how this company works and also for other potential litigants who might want to bring action against Remington or even other gun makers. And these documents were so significant that according to their lawyer, if it was no documents, no deal. They would have told these insurance companies to pound sand if it was just them offering the money and trying to move on. Uh, From the beginning, it was not about money. It was about finding out, getting answers, learning about these decisions. And the linchpin of this settlement is that it allows these families the rights to share the information as to what they learned with the public. And so this was a must-have for them. This is what they wanted because this was going to be the information that they hope will change hearts and minds. If members of the public can see this, they think it might persuade some, uh, you know, to see with their own eyes that these companies need a level of control or reform that so far they haven't been able to get. What else have the families said publicly since the settlement was announced? A lot of the families spoke at the news conference on Tuesday announcing the lawsuit. Hello, my name is Matthew Soto, and when I was 15, my sister Vicky was murdered in her first grade classroom. A lot of them, you know, they said the same thing. They were relieved by this outcome, and they were very hopeful, not only by what the lawsuit represents symbolically. It shows that this federal immunity law is not impenetrable, that there actually is a way to get some measure of accountability from these gun manufacturers. And and they were hopeful that, you know, the public would continue to pay attention and, um, you know, maybe use these documents that they were able to get to be successful in other lawsuits going forward. We hope this lawsuit sends a message to gun manufacturers, insurance companies, and the banks that support them that you can be held liable for these products that you are selling. We hope that our lawsuit sends a message to the gun industry that they are not untouchable and that our lawsuit is just the start of things. Thank you. What also came across clearly from the family members uh, is just how powerful this grief still is for them. We honor Ben in many ways. We tell stories about him, about how he wanted to be an architect, how he loved lighthouses, and had an energy that could make the house sound like a room full of people. 
you know, 20 of the victims were six and seven-year-olds. These are kids who would be getting close to the point of graduating high school at this point. And, you know, these families talked about futures that, you know, just will never be and, and children whose lives are frozen at six years old. And it just wasn't enough time with their family members. So the grief is still strong. And, and that's why they said the monetary component really wasn't that important to them because, you know, for them, no amount of money is ever going to restore what they lost. Our legal system has given us some justice today, but David and I will never have true justice. True justice would be our 15-year-old healthy and standing next to us right now. But Benny will never be 15. Has Remington come out with any kind of statement or their insurers who are having to be involved in the payout? Remington has been quiet since the news of the lawsuit. We haven't heard any public comments or response from them, and it's not clear if we will. You know, this company is in a pretty precarious situation right now. They filed for bankruptcy twice since 2018, and it's important to note that happened on their own. Uh, They didn't file for bankruptcy as a result uh, of this lawsuit or, you know, the litigation, but this company is really in a turning point, it seems, where it's not clear what kind of company they're going to be in the future or, you know, even if they're going to exist. Kim, I I guess I wonder where this leaves other survivors or victims' families who are looking to hold somebody accountable in the wake of these kinds of tragedies and to make it harder for them to happen. This lawsuit is really being viewed as an opening, as an example of, you know, what is possible now. Now that somebody has found a path to successfully get through these shield laws, you know, that's inspiring a level of hope in other future litigants who, you know, might be in the middle of um, stalled litigation or, or might want to initiate some lawsuits against these gun manufacturers. But also what's important is, uh, you know, the lawyers were saying this should be a wake-up call for other people who are in business with gun manufacturers, for their insurers and for their bankers to let them know that these gun companies can't just operate however they want. And that being in business with companies like this, you know, can be very expensive if these companies are going to run completely unchecked with, uh, you know, in this case, irresponsible marketing strategies. Even if everything stopped right now, what the families have accomplished is that they've given an incentive to an industry that doesn't want to have one (laughs) to, to change. They've given away, they've, you know, all the, all, any boardroom of any gun company today that would be looking at what happened to see if they could avoid it has a path. We've given it to them They've just based on what, uh, you know, we've shown. And the sort of loopholes like this one found by the families and lawyers in Connecticut, could this become a template for families and survivors elsewhere? It's a little complicated. The path that was taken by the Sandy Hook families in Connecticut is definitely one that others could follow, but it is ultimately going to fall down to what are the facts of the case and what are the specific laws in the states where these lawsuits are being filed. The facts of the case are going to have to line up. In this case, the families were able to file under a marketing statute and they were able to create a compelling case that marketing was a problem for Remington. For other lawsuits in the future, it's really going to depend on what the facts of those cases are and if they are a set of facts that are covered by various consumer protection laws in that state. I wonder if this is the beginning of a new kind of accountability after incidents of gun violence. Are we going to see more lawsuits like this going well for the families? It's a little too early to tell exactly 
how this is going to change the course. Legal experts that I talk to do feel confident, though, that it is going to change something. And if nothing else, it is providing a win. It's providing a pathway and, and frankly, hope to families who for more than 15 years have really just continued to run into obstacles every time they've sought to use the courts. Koskoff told me in an interview on Wednesday that this is kind of like climbing a mountain. People have gone up the mountain before using the same path and they haven't been able to get to the top. So they tried all sorts of different paths and they finally found one that worked. Will it work for every climber? Maybe not, but it definitely shows that the path is there and someone has gotten to the top by taking it. Kim Belwer is a national reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Spernofsky. After the break, we bring you to Ottawa, where protests against pandemic restrictions continue. Our target is to remove these mandates and to let us live free. I'm a Canadian that can't even leave this country. And this, to me, is ridiculous. I don't agree with it. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. In downtown Ottawa, a convoy of thousands of trucks has clogged the streets for the last three weeks. Post reporters are on the ground talking to people about what began as a protest against vaccine mandates for truck drivers. We're standing up for our freedoms, standing up against these uh, tyrannical uh, mandates. But the protesters' demands have evolved. People have come from all over Canada and camped outside of government buildings. Now, they say they want an end to all pandemic restrictions. Join your brothers and sisters in front of the parliament and show them why we're here for. For almost a week, protesters were using vehicles to block a key crossing between the U.S. and Canada, which was an international nightmare. On Sunday, that bridge was cleared. And on Monday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took the unprecedented step of invoking Canada's Emergencies Act. 
That's in part because Canadian officials alleged that a subset of these protesters have ties to extremist groups and want to overthrow the government. Occupying streets, harassing people, breaking the law. This is not a peaceful protest. I'm in a hotel room in downtown Ottawa covering the self-styled Freedom Convoy, which arrived here on January 28th and never left. That's Amanda Coletta. She covers Canada for The Post. She and our colleague Zoanne Murphy have been reporting on the protests in Ottawa. And Amanda says that even though that crossing and others have been cleared, people are still demonstrating. Big rigs and semis and other vehicles rolled up into the street right in front of Parliament and into various other downtown streets. They parked their vehicles there and they essentially haven't left. They have paralyzed the city. They have caused traffic chaos and they've caused a lot of disruption for the people who live in those neighborhoods. At the same time, they have inspired copycat protests abroad as far away as Australia. They've led to the resignation of the police chief of Ottawa. They have prompted local and provincial officials to declare states of emergency. And they have also prompted Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to become the first leader in Canadian history to invoke a law that grants his government far-reaching emergency powers to try and bring an end to the demonstrations. So what are these protests and these blockades? Like, what are they about? There's been at least one group that has been planning a convoy to Ottawa to protest against Prime Minister Trudeau and public health restrictions more broadly. Everything changed last month when the United States and Canada implemented rules that require truckers who cross the border to be fully vaccinated in order to enter their respective countries. And I don't feel that this shot will protect us or anybody around us since we come in contact with almost nobody. If you walk into a, a shopping store within two minutes, you've come in contact with more people than I do in three weeks. But it's really sort of important to note a couple of things here. The first is that if Canada was to drop this rule, unvaccinated Canadian truckers would still be barred from entering the United States because it is a U.S. rule that is keeping them Mm. out. And the second thing to note is that the vast majority of Canadian truckers are vaccinated. And in fact, the main sort of industry group for truckers here has distanced itself from the protest, saying that it doesn't support illegal blockades of critical infrastructure, and also that many of the organizers of the protest aren't truckers. They are, you know, figures from sort of fringe groups who have, you know, now been able to rally around this one issue. And when you talk to people here, they're not just asking for the removal of this vaccine requirement for truckers. They want an end to all coronavirus restrictions. I I got nothing against a person wanting to get vaccinated. Like, by all means, go right ahead. But Don't make everybody else do it that doesn't want to do it. Like it's, uh, where where did uh, freedom of choice go? 
And most of those restrictions aren't under the jurisdiction of the federal government. They are under the jurisdiction of the provinces. Um, And even as some provinces have begun to ease their restrictions, it has not stopped protesters from blockading borders or, you know, turning up in Ottawa. What is life like there right now for people who actually live in Ottawa? It's extremely disruptive. There are various neighborhoods that are located quite close to Parliament Hill. And, you know, there are apartment buildings there and residential homes. And it has been a nightmare. The demonstrators have essentially laid on their horns from morning till night. Yeah, we heard from our colleague, Zoanne Murphy, who is there now, and she spoke with Jocelyn Sinclair Bates, who is a student in downtown Ottawa. She was trying to attend class online when the convoy arrived. I couldn't focus at all. Just so irritating. Like, it was it was nonstop, um, from all directions kind of thing. And uh, the streets out front of my house, like I was in the back of my house in my kitchen trying to do my schoolwork there, and I could just hear it echoing around everywhere. The other thing is that You know, a lot of these vehicles are idling and they're belching out these noxious fumes. We've had everyone evacuate um, the building because of it. We've had our landlord send out an email saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to do. And our detectors have been going off because of it. That's how bad it is. So tell me about some of the problems that resulted from the fact that there were blockades along the border. Like, what were the consequences of that? The one blockade that really pushed authorities to take this all more seriously was a blockade at the Ambassador Bridge, which links Windsor, Ontario to Detroit. Hundreds of millions of dollars in trade crosses the border each day. It's the busiest land crossing on uh, for commercial freight on the U.S.-Canada border. And it's very important to the auto industry on both sides of the border. And so it wasn't just um, a Canada problem anymore. This is now something that affects the United States, affects Canada's trading relationship with its most important trading partner, you know, affects Canada's economic security and also its reputation around the world as a reliable trading partner. So you have this situation where, you know, Notionally, this is supposed to be a trucker's protest, but the impact of the protest has been that people participating in the demonstration have been blocking commercial truckers from being able to do their job. We saw last week when the bridge was blockaded that several Auto firms had to scale back production or cut shifts because of the closure of the bridge, and not just in Windsor or in Detroit, but also as far away as Alabama. And so then what happened after that? How did the Canadian government start to take action? A couple of things happened. The provincial government declared a state of emergency. And then over the weekend, that border crossing was cleared. The police had made several arrests and traffic was able to move again. But it's clear that this whole thing is not over, right? That even though that one blockade at that one border crossing has been cleared up, that this is an issue that is still pretty volatile. 
Yes. And in fact, the day after the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge was cleared, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. It was the first time in Canadian history that this law, which was passed in 1988, had ever been invoked. And the law gives the government far-reaching powers to sort of attempt to end the blockades. This is about keeping Canadians safe, protecting people's jobs, and restoring confidence in our institutions. It's supposed to be a measure of last resort. We learned this week a little bit about what this might look like. The Prime Minister has said that he's not using the Emergencies Act to call in the military. One of the things that the Act will do is allow officials to designate certain areas as sort of no-go zones and to make demonstrations there where there is a reasonable chance that there will be a breach of peace, sort of protected places. And, you know, illegal gatherings there will effectively be banned. And that also also includes prohibiting people from bringing minor children to those illegal assemblies. Uh, police have said that roughly 25% of the vehicles that are encamped in the city contain children. Hmm. The measures also include a section that deals specifically with choking off the financing to the convoy. Um, And so that will allow banks to perhaps temporarily freeze the accounts of people who are suspected of participating in the blockades or supporting them without having to get a court order first. Various crowdfunding platforms like GoFundMe or GiveSendGo, which have been involved in raising money for the convoy, will now come under anti-money laundering and terrorism financing laws, and they will have to report suspicious transactions and, and large transactions to Canada's Financial Intelligence Unit. They'll also compel companies like tow truck companies to remove vehicles that have been blocking roads. What has been the response from the Canadian public about how the government has handled all of this? I think there has been, at least from speaking to people in Ottawa, There is a sense that the police and other public institutions and the various levels of government have essentially abandoned them. When the convoy was departing various parts of Canada, you know, to get to Ottawa, there was a lot of concern about it because of some of the chatter on social media among people who were participating in the convoy or, uh, backing it. There were some people who were saying that they wanted this to be Canada's January 6th, referring to the siege on the Capitol. Hmm. And so there was a lot of pressure on police to reassure the public uh, that it was taking this seriously. And they basically let the convoy into the main street in front of parliament. And they've said that They learned from their conversations with organizers that the organizers intended to stay just for the weekend, but that's not what happened. But since then, they have, critics, I guess would say, had a sort of light touch. It seems like initially the strategy that police were employing was the same strategy that they employ to deal with other protests. But, you know, now that we are heading into a fourth weekend, you know, some people are asking why they haven't done more to enforce the laws that are already on the books. What what do you think is the significance of these protests? So I think it's a bit of a wake-up call for authorities at all levels of government. 
And I think also, you know, speaking to people here in Ottawa, one of the things that I keep hearing over and over again is that the loss of trust isn't something that can be repaired soon, that the the way in which they feel that public institutions have abandoned them is something you know, once once trust is lost, it's going to take a, a while to repair. Amanda Coletta covers Canada for The Post. Video journalist Zoanne Murphy also contributed reporting. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Alexis Diao. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.